Welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives in its race, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, tears, and trials. I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. And uh, Peter, you know, the last couple episodes started to make myself a little depressed. Mm, yeah. Off of the subject matter. Yeah. Mostly because we were just talking about like unreformable situations in the past. Right. Not anything that might uh, might have been a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So uh, naturally, I turned to the most uh, optimistic place possible, which mm. is uh, Norwegian black metal. Yeah. And its consequences. It's the happiest music on earth. I, I'm going to go on record right now saying I don't like black metal. I do like metal, but I like metal that sounds like rock music. And not, you know, uh, a fucking sonic exploration of the darkest darkness imaginable. Like, you don't um, like just hours of. No, especially, no. I mean, I could, you know, I, I could even see as they're talented. I don't know. I don't know. If, I don't understand how making music works. So I'm sure it's very complicated and they do a lot of interesting things. I just don't care for it. And I find it ironic that it's called black metal when it's the major varietal of metal, as far as I can tell, that is the furthest from the black roots of rock and roll. <laughs> there's no soul. There's no groove. Like it's. You know, some forms of metal there is, like there's a lot of it in, you know, Aussie, there's a lot of it in, you know, many different kinds of like thrash and death metal and what have you, but like black metal, no no thanks, I don't don't like it. I I do like some, although it just ranks like a very distant eighth or ninth to me to Mm -hmm. like rock metal Mm -hmm. and like these days. But that said, yeah, we're not, we're not, this isn't a music criticism podcast, folks. Yeah. In August of 1993, Peter, one particular little black metal shithead, Christian Vakernis, aka Varg Vakernis, aka Count Grisnak, aka Varg Vakernis again, of the Norwegian black metal band, which consisted pretty much of just him, called Burzum, Burzum. Uh, was arrested and put on trial for stabbing his one-time friend, uh, record label boss and head of the band Mayhem, which Vikernes was a bassist, Eistin Arset. And that is just the beginning of how much I will be mangling people's names. Stabbing him to death at Arset's apartment building. And after a trial by jury, Vikernes was found guilty of murder and other lesser offenses. And in May of 1994, Vikernes, guilty of taking another man's life in cold blood, was sentenced to the maximum sentence in Norway, 21 years. Mm. So uh, this is the story of how justice system functions very differently. Yeah. Uh, and in a very different type of society. Right. If you wanted a story about, you know, the the sick-ass crimes of these crazy dudes, this isn't, uh, the, the crimes of Vikernas are an oft-recounted tale. You can find that in plenty of places. What we're talking about here is the differences between American and Norwegian society, American and Norwegian prison uh, and incarceration, and the problem that inevitably comes up whenever people advocate for prison reform of any kind, let alone abolition, what do you do with a completely unrepentant, murderous shithead? Yeah, so this isn't going to be like uh, the subject of many of our episodes, uh, 
down on their luck people trapped mm-hmm. in, in various circumstances. It's going to be of a very different sort. A, a guy who absolutely does not appreciate the democratic socialist society he lives in and is quite the opposite. If you're listening to this show, of course, you probably already know that America's prisons are uh, brutal, murderous, concrete blocks serving you food that you wouldn't give a farm animal, squeezing inmates and their families for basic items like socks and toilet paper, and where the idea of a good time is just being able to see the sun. And serve, they serve to traumatize, of course, inmates and steer them on the path to doing it all over again, uh, mm-hmm. in spite of how horrible they are. Mm-hmm. On top of this, prisoners can't vote. Ex-prisoners are made all but unemployable by their records, except at jobs paying terrible wages and in working in degrading conditions. But I thought this episode, of course, would be an interesting way to explore a more humane prison system in a social democratic or democratic socialist society. You can play around with the terms, uh, a country where the parliament owns and controls something like 50 to 60 percent of the GDP. 76% if you leave out homeownership, where healthcare, housing, education, jobs, or income is guaranteed as a matter of right, and 70% of workers are unionized. In other words, the exact polar opposite of the United States. And just a little bit of an aside, I first became interested in this when uh, I saw Michael Moore's uh, Sicko, mm-hmm. and he makes this trip to Norway, and kind of in the usual like wink and nod way, he goes to an island where he says gentle peaceful society of rapists murderers <laughs> and so on and it turns out to be prison mm-hmm. all of norway seems to be beautiful peaceful and civilized but one place within norway outshines it all a place reachable only by boat an island that's a model of sustainable ecology. A destination for families on the weekend. A popular spot for locals to experience a close-knit community of murderers, rapists, and child molesters. That is actually like kind of like a, a you progress beyond maximum security and, and outward to like a lower level of security yeah. and, re- and reform. But it was very obvious the conditions were great. And a right. lot of Americans saw that and they're like, this is better than what I got. Yeah. Being, in, out of, in freedom. Yes. In yeah. freedom in America. He got criticized because he showed like that this is a place for better prisoners who have shown good behavior and so on. Yeah. And so he then did another segment on Halden Prison, mm. which is itself still a model prison, but it is their maximum security yeah. facility. And that, too, has what a lot of Americans complain, like, look like dorm rooms. Right. And you even see this just come up online occasionally. I, I saw, like, a Hassan Piker thing the other day where he's reacting to a video of Norwegian prison. I saw ex-American prisoners on YouTube who have YouTube it, channels yeah. about how to do in prison, reacting to Norwegian prisons. So... It's a fascinating thing, but they're almost all reacting to this one prison, Alden Prison, because it is such a, a model place. Yeah, my understanding is that prisons pretty much across Western Europe are considerably nicer than American prisons, but that Norway and maybe the other Scandinavian countries are Yeah, know, like, like Finland. Yeah, Europe take also. it a couple extra degrees, like... You know, if you see, I've I've seen, you know, and partially fiction, partially documentary, like French or British prisons, and like, you know, they're not as they, they you wouldn't mistake it for your dorm, right? But 
you also wouldn't mistake it for American prison. Yeah, I mean, notably, at least in the case of Norway in 1999, I saw this been cited in a couple of different newspaper articles. They refused to extradite this accused drug small girl, Henry Henriksen, who's definitely at least part Norwegian, yeah. uh, who smuggled 50 tons of hashish into Vermont. Uh, they refused to extradite him to the United States because that would be allowing a person in their custody to go to a place where he would be, in their view, tortured. Yeah. Just by being sent to an oh, American yeah. prison, that would be torture. I think that's a pretty valid call. I, yeah, I think it's a valid assessment of if, American if I were, Yeah, if I were in charge of a European justice system, I'd say the same thing. Even if I even if I were in charge of a European prison system and not an abolitionist, I would say the same thing. Yeah. So uh, as, as I said, we're not exploring the question of like what happens to a more paradigmatically reformable, uh, you know, down on their luck, like liquor store robber who can get an education on the inside and, and turn out different, um, a mentally ill person, you have the counseling they need. We'd like to see this prison system from like the harshest point yeah. of view uh, here, uh, which is from a complete brick, uh, narcissistic <laughs> liar, uh, on again, off again, Nazi idolizer, right. um, new age kind of magic loving racist murderer mm -hmm. and a pedantic sycophant who nevertheless, some say at least has some musical talent. Right, who killed for literally no reason, other than he liked the idea. He wanted to be a murderer. That was his goal. Um, he wanted to be extreme. I guess we might as well go into, like, the background. And again, we're not going to get the sort of in-depth look you could get from, like, Lords of Chaos, yeah. uh, which was written by, I believe, Didrik Sodenstor, some Norwegian name beginning with an S, and Michael Mornahan, who is also a Nazi. Uh, he denies it. But he is. He's a prominent uh, musician, music writer, Charles Manson fanboy, etc. Interesting uh, Gen X figure. Yeah, and uh, other podcasts have covered the whole like the church clout hungry one upmanship that mm. turned like people playing at being like evil Satanists. Mm -hmm. In Arsis' case, actually, like playing at being a like totalitarian like Pol Pot lover. Mm. People like actually escalating and turning this into a reality for more clout and yeah. to try to sell their record like literally to try to sell the right. record i, I think like, i mean i think in, in fact um Amr's podcast uh did a whole thing on this but yeah yeah i mean mark ames when he reviewed lords of chaos said that you know it all came down to the norwegians don't have enough of a sense of humor to get that satanic metal is always a joke <laughs> and some of them decided to make it real out of their humorlessness and their their pedantry uh, all the way to murder. Yeah. The Kernis are um, kind of anti-protagonist background. Just in brief, didn't come from a, a bad or hard luck childhood by both stretches of the imagination. His, both of his parents were engineer types who worked in the Norwegian oil industry. That, of course, being a really big industry, particularly in the 70s and 80s. He did have uh, a stint in his childhood where he did see a substantial amount of violence that was not done to him when he attended school in Iraq, purportedly. His father was working there as an expat for a few years. But when he came back to Norway, he began getting into this scene. And, and I mean, there's just a level of like high nerdiness, but mm -hmm. some, but like also humorless in yeah. the way that he got into the black metal scene. His first band was Urukai. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of like, I think Count Krishnok is also a 
Yeah, that was the, the first name under which he uh, had the Burzum album. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I've known a lot of metalheads in my day, and there, there's always those people who are like seemingly genuinely disappointed by how not extreme everyone is, and right, they get into the scene, they go all in on the scene, and then they realize, and most of the time that gets turned into pedantry about the music, right? It gets turned into yeah. oh, you you act like you're this. <laughs> counterculture you act like you value extremity of music and yet there's this other type of music that's more extreme out there that you don't know about you you idiots on the scene who aren't me or you know other cultural obscurities but every now and again it becomes actually behavioral the perpetual war of, of the the real guys versus posers exactly and in the curtis's case this uh turned into in the milieu this like escalating series of attacks, including the stabbing of uh, a gay guy um, by another guy, Faust, burnings of hundreds of years old medieval Norwegian churches, the law and thereby like the loss of like incredible mm. architecture. But in any case, in 1993, Vikernes had already been implicated in a series of arsons, uh, theft of explosives. He stole 150 pounds of dynamite, which he was reportedly going to use in a plot to blow up like a. Uh, like a punk activist mm -hmm. squat yeah. in Oslo, that being part of the whole like left wing, yeah, anti-fascist yeah. anti type scene. It's still there, I think. Mm. Um, but in addition to that, he would implicate it in other crimes, like six different burglaries, all arising out of this like tit for tat, like who has more clout, mm. Satanist, pagan, Aryan berserker, yeah, like holier than thou, Norwegian black unholier metal. Unholier than thou. Unholier than thou, Norwegian yeah. black metal scene. And this really came to a head on August 10th of 1993, when the 21-year-old Vikernes is driven by a friend and musical associate, Snorri Blackthorn Rook, or Rook, from his home in Bergen, Norway, on the western coast, all the way to Oslo on the eastern side. Now, the purported reason for this meeting was that Oystein Artseth, aka Euronymous, the lead singer of Mayhem and head of the record label that had put out Burzum's records, had sent the Kernis a contract that he's supposed to sign in order to get the loads of back royalties that Artseth owed Vikernes, our future killer. But in this ride that he took from Bergen to Oslo, which is a little over seven hours drive, mm -hmm. Vikernes had already packed two different knives, a boot knife, as he called it, which is a folding knife, and another knife, which he ended up leaving in the car, which was on a belt, mm. and had purportedly arranged an alibi with a third associate who would charge Vikernes's credit card in Bergen to make it seem like he was still there when he was not intending to murder Arseth, right. if you believe his account. Yeah, he, he sounds like a man with a plan. Yeah. So Arseth, upon seeing Vikernes, and this is at night, mind you, led him into his apartment in what we can only imagine is a confrontation about this contract that Vikernes has to sign mm -hmm. and the money that Arseth Oh, it's Vikernes. Mm -hmm. uh, this confrontation happened, and what happened quite next is a little bit unclear. But what we do know is that Arseth ran out of the apartment after whatever confrontation happened, and Vikernes ran behind him and stabbed him in the back mm -hmm. 16 times. Mm -hmm. Stabbed him in the neck about five times in the head twice for a total, I believe, of 23 stabs. Now, as you can imagine, with uh, such a Brutal, uh, hard to swear murder happening. Uh, Snorri, 
the guy who drove Vikernis to Oslo, yeah. turned state's evidence, turned on Vikernis and testified about the made-up alibi and testified that Vikernis had always planned to kill Arseth, possibly to kind of just rule the scene. Right. Now, Vikernis to this... Fake friend. Yeah. Vikernis to this day is unrepentant and makes a whole series of kind of frankly hard-to-believe stories about how this went down because his claim has always been that he didn't murder Arseth. He did this all in self-defense. Mm. The more, most recent story that I could see, starting in like 2009, is that he claimed that Arseth wanted to take him out with a stun gun, take him to the woods and torture and kill him in the woods and film it all. And that he told this to a close friend who told it to Vikernis. And that Vikernis kind of preempted the action. Right. He also said that when he confronted Arseth that night, that Arseth ran into the apartment to get a knife so Vikernis thought it was okay to pull out his own knife. Mm -hmm. And then he, Arseth, dropped his knife and ran into, towards a room where he could get a gun. So then Vikernis feared for his life. But didn't he run out of the apartment? Yes. Okay. It's all hard to reconcile with, with the actual... guy being running outside, screaming for neighbors and getting stabbed in the back. Yeah, 16 times. Yeah, like after after step number two, you're probably you're right. probably you're safe. Probably safe from his stun gun plan. Yeah, if it ever existed. Yeah. Now there's also the fact that when you drive seven hours with two knives in the middle of the night, you're probably not trying to settle a contract dispute. Right, and you're not by the way. And having somebody give you an alibi. Yeah. You usually don't need an alibi for contract disputes. Yeah. So as you can imagine, uh, the Norwegian jury and judges found him guilty. Mm. Kind of a mixed system there. He's sent to prison and a little bit of a myth has kind of arisen out of this that kind of just goes with the whole mythology around the Norwegian black metal milieu, which is the Curtis is like a, supposedly a rebel against like mm. the in a Nietzschean way. Yeah. Against like the Christian concept of equality, mm -hmm. compassion, yeah. feeling for your fellow man, instead wants to revive like pagan, virile, right? You know, penis-centric violence. Yes. Uh, so being sent to prison in such a nice, humane place as Norway, mm -hmm. supposedly Vikernis demanded it to be more oppressive and more violent. Like, mm -hmm. how dare you treat me as like not? in Salo or something. Yeah. And he said this actually, the, the part on record that he's saying here is that when he's arrested prior to the murder arrest, so in February mm. 93, he said, it's much too nice here. It's not hell at all. In this country, prisoners get a bed, a toilet, and a shower. And he means their own bed, toilet, and shower, yeah. mind you. There's no two-man cells in Norway. Hmm. It's completely ridiculous. I asked the police to throw me in a real dungeon and encourage them to use violence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so it sounds like, you know, if he said that, you know, during the church burning situation, before he got put in for murder, that once he got a taste of real trouble... Maybe he started changing his tune. Yeah, and that's the uh, that's the funny thing is he definitely changes his tune about how good Norwegian prisons are, but it's not for the reason you think. Mm. He becomes a very litigious little twerp, mm. you might say. He wants he wants to talk to the manager. He wants to talk to the manager, and so does his mom. Oh, of course, his the mom, mom does. calls in many times. Of course, the mom does. So uh, I thought I would take a little detour here to actually explain somewhat how Norway actually structures its prisons, because everyone knows that oh, like they're nice, they look like dorm rooms compared to American prisons, but maybe it's good to actually see like what the philosophy is behind it and uh, 
even where it comes from. Because it's not like the standard narrative is just there was like a technocratic Norwegian person in an irrational Scandinavian way. Mm -hmm. They said, rather than having prisons where we serve people terrible things and don't educate them and try to inflict painful punishment, uh, why not try to re-educate them and, mm -hmm. and make them better citizens and neighbors. And that was actually a historical process mm -hmm. and didn't really just come from the top down. Mm -hmm. My sources on this, I, I think, are well, a lot of Norwegian government sources because every one of these prisons has like an ombudsman mm -hmm. that comes from the Ministry of Justice that actually inspects the prison and continu just continually cites them mm -hmm. on what things are wrong. Mm. by what are called the Mandela principles. Yeah. Like re like in measuring from what things were oppressive, I guess, in, in Mandela's experience in Robben Island, being oh. like isolated, deprived, yeah. and so on. Those are the things that they're kind of inverting. Hmm. Um, but really, they're, they're just in compliance with UN regulations on how you're supposed to treat prisoners. Um, but in a very strong interpretation of that. Mm -hmm. So Norway structured its prison system primarily for rehabilitation and reintegration. The, the life sentence was taken out in 1981. Mm -hmm. And so to that end, pretty much everyone who enters a Norwegian prison is coming back out in society. Mm -hmm. And they don't want them to reoffend or violate anyone's rights when they mm -hmm. come out. And the question is how to do that. Uh, they stress a lot of uh, what they call normality mm. in prison. So prison life should be secure and you lose your freedom. You lose the ability to decide things like, you know, where I want to go today. And right. Like what comes into me to read. But you don't lose like basic citizen rights. You don't mm. lose like your ability to eat normal food or like walk around on a normal day or enjoy nature in a normal mm -hmm. way. So Norway, it imprisons its citizens less for shorter lengths of time. And this is the important part, because otherwise people will probably be disregarding this totally. Uh, its citizens have only a 20% risk of reoffending if they're sent mm. to prison. Interesting. Uh, what's the risk in, what's the recidivism rate in other countries? Uh, so in the United States, the recidivism rate is like between 60 and 70%. Oh, wow. It's different in Scandinavia, a little bit different in Germany, but Norway and you know Finland, the Scandinavian countries, the only ones that have like a really low risk of reoffending. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the, the European countries, they have just much less crime because social democracy really does lower the risk mm -hmm. of people becoming criminals or turning to crime. Mm -hmm. But in dealing with like the, the leftover population, the people who like for various reasons like drug addiction and mental illness and being a weird black meddler for those various reasons uh, like in that left behind population like most of the time they reoffend, except in norwegian prisons mm. where this approach really seems to work but it didn't come out of nowhere mm -hmm. so norway's prisons have probably been better than the u.s on how they treat inmates since like at least the 1950s just being a social democratic society but it was in the 1970s that you had uh, full-on abolitionist prison abolitionist groups form in norway primarily as like civil society groups as well as prisoners unions inside the prison the biggest civil society group being one called krom Rome. they managed to have a strategy that was like we're going to end parts of the prison on the way to mm. ending the prison as an institution as such yeah and move towards a system of uh, more generalized like social services mental mm -hmm. health treatment yeah 
that sort of thing. They managed to end forced labor in Norwegian prisons, which is to say you can't be just told like, okay, you have to go to vocational school, yeah. or you have to go ahead and, and work on, on something and uh -huh. then you learn your prison wage that way, which had been like kind of the Norwegian model, like nicer like Soviet system yeah. where you're expected to work in prison. Like yeah. It is work camp and work is how you redeem yourself. Mm -hmm. They managed to abolish that in the 1970s though there was like a big backlash. Mm. But the prisons largely stayed put. Recidivism didn't really change. And in the 1980s, and particularly in the late 1980s, came to a crisis. They still had the exact or nearly the same recidivism rates in the 1980s we have in the U.S. Mm. or the U.K. has today. What happened in 89 and 92 was that the prison conditions got so deteriorated in terms of both their living conditions and, and I was surprised by that this was like the crucial thing, um, the guards conditions right. started getting to the point where they were like, we won't tolerate this anymore. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So there were two guard murders, and I can't find anything in English about them, mm. but I know from the presentation of the head of Holden Prison that uh, one guard was murdered in 1989 and another in 1992 in these kind of ongoing disputes with inmates, that there was quite a bit of more, quite a bit more violence in the prison at that time, although just nothing even close to the U.S. Yeah. And he did talk about the, the head of Holden Prison, how there was, uh, there were a couple of what he said were, he's like, we would call these riots. I realized in the U.S. you wouldn't call these prison riots. Yeah. <laughs> because like literally like when a group of inmates are like disruptive, they're like, that's right. Mm, yeah. Like they're just kind of like, they're, they're getting, they're, they're, they're like talking more loudly than usual. How, how, I, I don't expect you to have this on your fingertips, but like how often are guards killed in the U.S.? That I don't know because it's so broken up by state. Yeah. And, it, you know, unlike Norway, where they have a full, just one yeah. encompassing yeah. correctional yeah. officers. Yeah. Correctional officers seeing in the U.S. just really vary. They're different right. levels. And some of them are more like police unions, like yes. fraternal organization. That yeah, yeah. And some of them are more like actual, like, unions. unions. And, and you also, I mean, yeah, just the many different constituencies in the U.S., local, state, federal, county. And however many of them are private prisons, I imagine they don't necessarily share all the best. Yeah, I imagine Wackenhut doesn't want their guards to be unions. Right. I basically, I base, you know, I if you if you base it off of like television or movies, you have the idea that guards get killed all the time. But I imagine, but yeah, that's so interesting that it was the CEOs, yeah, at least in part, who said, yeah, the, these guys' living conditions are our working conditions. Yeah, which, which, which is a, it's a fact, like just. As a fact, but apparently American prison guards like don't seem to they to they think anything like that because from my extremely limited observations, they don't seem to. Yeah, so I'm a really of two minds on this. So on the on the one hand, like I just know for a fact that like the California Correctional Officers Union, for example, their big thing is to lobby for more construction of prisons. Yeah. And that has a working condition component too, right. because the more your prisons are this like kind of like open air multi-bunk if you've seen mm -hmm. pictures of like the conditions inside california prison oh yeah an incredible just mass of yeah. prisoners to to secure in their view then that's very hard but their solution is just build more prisons mm -hmm. hire more guards as i understand they opposed any kind of like 
lessening of sentence length. Yeah. And that seems to be the exact opposite of the direction that Norway's gone. Right. I will say, though, from my own personal experience in picking juries and any defense attorneys on to, who might be listening to this, might also have the same experience. It really varies. You kind of have to know your local conditions mm. as to whether prison guards are actually considerably more sympathetic huh. to an everyday person. Um, when I was working in Miami, we we had the experience that a lot of the corrections officers that would come into our jury pools were highly sympathetic huh. to people and also were to there, defendants. To defendants huh. And were also much more dismissive of kind of like lesser charges right like if, if someone was in there for uh drug possession or a you know a, a low level drug dealing that could be construed as possession yeah then like we don't want to warehouse this guy they're like we absolutely not yeah exactly interesting they're like don't do not add this guy in he's yeah no yeah. anyway uh, I, I, <laughs> uh you know can't know this for sure but once i had a, a a corrections officer like it certainly seemed like she swung the jury from from one direction to a firm not guilty so yeah all right so what so what happened after so what were these 90s reforms yeah so as a result of this kind of agitation in particular these are more like it's not like the prison guards like went on strike to bring in reform it was more yeah. like they started pushing for the Ministry of Justice and the kind of sub-ministry of prisons within that to change the way that the prisons were run. And a lot of emphasis is put on the overall that happens in 1998, but it starts earlier. It starts actually before the Kuranis enters into the prison system. And the big principle that I saw articulated over and over was the switch to what's called the import model. Mm. So the import model principle is that a prisoner doesn't lose the right to equal social services on account of the fact that they committed the crime. Yeah. And equal social services in Norway means that they have the right to get and spend their income as close as possible to a, nor a, stand a normal Norwegian citizen. Yeah. Uh, they have the right to the same health care. So there's not, there's not like a prison doctor. It right. is just an extension of the hospital that's nearest to the prison. Yeah. There's not a separate school. They mm. it's just an extension of the high school or college or vocational school mm. that's closest to the prison. And it's teachers from there, doctors from there, nurses from right. there. The the prison grocery store that's in there, and I'm not sure if you saw the video from like Vingurica prison, but it just looks like a like a small grocery. It looks so, like Star Market up here. Like, so like instead of a cafeteria, the prisoners buy groceries and cook their own food yes although they're they they can get cafeteria if food they want to yeah brought to their living unit huh. but other than that they have a communal kitchen that they usually share with a small group of other prisoners that has all the things and they cook. and all of the all of the tools that would go in the kitchen like knives and yeah and stoves yeah that you could potentially use to kill each other yeah i mean one of the shocking things to me was that in in halden prison the the warden when he was giving this speech to a group of American prison wardens, many of them from like the, the upper west, like yeah. Montana, North Dakota and stuff like that. He was saying the only like misuse of tools we've had so far since we started implementing like various reforms in like 2004 or so mm -hmm. was 
that someone took a, a two by four from like the wood shop and just turned to another prisoner and just bumped him. Hmm. And like, honestly, I can't imagine that was anything more than just shut the fuck up. Yeah, fuck. Yeah, yeah. He's like, that's the only one we had. Oh. It wasn't like, a, you know, like you hear so much in American prisons, particularly if you like, we, we talked about Eric Swanson's channel from before yeah, we talked yeah. about the Lansing Correctional Institute yeah. that, you know, people are just taking bits yeah, they're manufacturing weapons from whatever they've got. Everything. Yeah. And drugs. And I mean, yeah. And I mean, that happens in Norwegian prisons sometimes. Uh -huh. But the level of violence is so low. Mm -hmm. It's just not a pervasive thing. And I mean, part of that, and this is certainly something that factors into what the correctional officers would like, is the number of correctional officers per prisoner is so much higher in Norway. Mm. And they, as a result, or like part, as part of that, like they have a very public like relationship with the prisoners. Hmm. American prisons, they want to actually put all in most prisons, frankly, like that are corrupt. Right. Right. They like UK and so on. They try to put as much separation between prisoners and guards as possible because prisoners can like in the words of Swanson, like they, they pull guards, yeah. right? Yeah. They're like they arrange a little favor. Mm -hmm. You know, do a, do a little exchange, and then before you know it, they're bringing in contraband. Right, they're doing all that stuff. Yeah, I, I worked at a gas station that was on the road to one of Massachusetts's bigger prisons, and I used to get COs. Yeah, because I worked the night shift, I used to get the COs going into the night shift, and at, at Norfolk or Walpole or whatever. And you know, they were there in their uniforms and they were getting, you know, their candy bars and their snack cakes and their cigarettes and lottery tickets. And whenever they got more than usual, I always wondered, like, is that going to somewhere? Right. Are they just hungry or is that going somewhere? Right. That extra snowball. Yeah. Right. When they buy a carton, is it is it just because they're stocking up or is it going somewhere? I mean, a, a friend of mine uh, who used to be a federal CEO, like way back in the day, he's a very, very radical guy, very, very cool. Mm -hmm. But what he told me is that in particular, you have this problem of if you exchange one thing, if, yeah. if, if there's one thing done, then, then, then the inmate then has a way to rat on yes. you. That becomes their currency, mm -hmm. their leverage to use on you. So he said, like, inmates would be, like, making, like, little, uh, like, cutouts with soap, like, artwork. And they're like, hey, we take this home to your wife. Mm -hmm. you're, especially if you're, like, a rookie, you mm -hmm. take that. And then they're like, I'll report you. Yeah. So why don't you take in something else for me? And then it just escalated yeah, yeah. in our relationship, mm -hmm. which is pretty crazy. But here, there's just very, very little risk, it seems like, of the inmates wanting to get something from the outside besides like total contraband, like drugs. Mm -hmm. And so, and also the relationships, the conversations are all very public. So what comes up with um, these prisons over and over is that they have what they call dynamic security, which is basically the guards are just approaching and talking to the inmates, playing cards with them mm -hmm. saying like, what's up? And they pick up on if something's weird. Right. Huh. And the, the the flip side of this is like they they have like a deep relationship with with the people who are held there. Like right when but deep not in like a transactional like yeah. you're in deep, but yeah, like, like an actual like a like a human way. Like they're huh. they're sad if things happen to them huh. rather than just being like, well, shit happens. So this all, like I said, get back gets back to the import system where 
life has tried to be made as normal as possible by giving people on the inside the same services they would on the outside. Now, of yeah. course, this is Norway we're talking about. So compared I to the U.S., they have services like we don't have yeah. any social rights. Like, yeah, I, I a family friend of ours was uh, the head of volunteer services in the Massachusetts state prison system. And it had been, you know, there was some of it was educational. Yeah. Right. Arranging literacy classes and so on. But it had been so slashed to the bone, all the budget, that they had the ba the main part of his job was arranging the one thing that was constitutionally protected in terms of volunteer services, which was a cleric of your own religion. Um, which has to be guaranteed, I'm sure, is that? Yes, which is guaranteed yeah. constitutionally, according to the courts. Yeah, it was an interesting job. So, I mean, one thing that really struck me, especially after reading, you know, Devil's Front Porch and all the dealing with all this stuff with with Lansing in our clutter murders episode is how much there's not the normal kind of scarcity that you have in prison mm. and one way I, I thought about this is a really simple and frankly explains like so much of crime that happens on the outside is that there's limited opportunities for this individual but more opportunities by viewing mm -hmm. crime the same thing is true in inside prison as mm. it was on the outside. There's limited opportunities to get like food that isn't disgusting right. in American prisons or clothing or any kind of entertainment. Right. And so people do crimes to get those things or exchange mm. favors. And that's how you get this kind of internal black market. In Norway, that's not the case. Like the prisoners have TVs mm -hmm. in their cells. They don't even call themselves the calm rooms. Yeah. They have the sheets changed regularly. They try to keep it up to like a normal condition mm. so that there aren't those other opportunities. Right. They have access to nature mm -hmm. on the outside. It usually looks like a park around the prison, but right. one thing to keep in mind is that these places aren't any less prisons. They aren't like some of the minimum security institutes in the United States. Like they have like huge concrete walls. Yeah. It's just, it's surrounding a park. And like in the case of like Bergen prison, for example, a place that kind of looks like a little village. Right. And I mean, I think this is important as well. Like they do have conjugal visits. Like mm. the prisoners do have sex, but also it's a family connection that they right. have. Yeah. Wife's girlfriend, boyfriend. Right. It connects whatever. them back to the community and helps them reintegrate yeah and i mean uh, many prison wardens and this includes like in places like spain and portugal and stuff like that say that this does cut down on on rape sexual violence obviously yeah there is not like a market for like right. basically sexually enslaving people that there yeah. is in a lot of american prisons so i i should admit here that norway has a very small number of people mm -hmm. in prison yeah it also has a variety of things going on with their criminal justice system that are just as devil's advocate, I should probably address. The U.S. incarcerates about 505 people per 100,000 people. Norway incarcerates 55 people wow. for that. So it's it's around like one ninth, one tenth. That's not due to pure leniency, even though they have that maximum sentence of 21 years. Yeah. Norway has a very low crime rate, but mm -hmm. a very, very high clearance rate okay. compared to the U.S. So if you do a crime, you're likely to get caught. Yeah, and, and clearance for our listeners who don't know, it doesn't necessarily mean like whether you get convicted of the offense, right. but it means that the police have found a perpetrator for a reported offense mm -hmm. and arrested that perpetrator. Yeah. And uh, in the U.S., it's more like half 
Yeah. Um, including on murder. Right. And there's a lot of shocking statistics. Like some cities have like a 7% clearance rate for murder. And uh, but suffice to say, yeah, if you commit a crime in Norway, there's less people who are out there committing mm -hmm. crimes. They're much, 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 much more likely to mm -hmm. get caught. And when they get caught, they then get put into this system here. So Norway has like uh, 5.4 million people, mm -hmm. a comparable size state in the United States is Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, Norway has 2,800 people in prison. Colorado has 30,000. Wow. In Massachusetts, the number in prison or jail in Massachusetts actually has the lowest incarceration rate in the United States. Wow. But it's still insane for like by European yeah. standards. So it's like 250 people hmm. for 100,000. Again, Norway is uh, 55. Massachusetts has 17,000 people in prison or jail at any one time. So uh, the other devil's advocate thing I always hear used against the Nordic social democracies is it works for them because their population is so homogenous. Right? That's the one that pisses me off. The most. Yeah. yeah. Like you couldn't get it here because of our racial conflicts. Blah, blah blah, and this was going to kind of lead into a question I was going to ask, and, and you know maybe we we don't have the answers for it, which is what are who are the people who wind up other than Berg, who are the people who wind up in prison in Norway? So because what I know, yeah. all I know is from uh, not from Norway but from Sweden, which is a country about uh, twice the population, mm -hmm. um, and I know this quote unquote from. Sweden's greatest national export, the the Schwenkrimi, the the Swedish crime novel, uh, right? Your your Stig Larsons, your Henning Mankells, and my idea of the sort of Swedish criminal milieu. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, in most of these novels, the real criminals turn out to be you know the respectable Swedes who are hiding behind it all, yeah. uh, or hiding behind their their normality to do terrible things. But the criminal milieu. Oh, is an echo who is really responsible for crime in society? Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. But the criminal milieu, such as it is, is made up of, in these novels, it's made up of like kind of, socially speaking, they'd be kind of like biker dudes in our society. So like, you know, Swedes who are from, you know, rough circles, because they're still, okay, they're social democratic, but they're still capitalist. Yeah. So they're still poor people. Like there's people, there's people who, you know, are kind of, maybe they're, untreated mental illness or whatever else or they're just kind of jerks or they're kind of they have a rebellious streak and they wind up in you know a bike gang or kind of a nazi gang maybe which that's not and i and i mean notably like it's just overwhelmingly regardless of how much you whittle it down like males between the age of 20 yeah. and 30 that's yeah that's it's, the crime in time yeah <laughs> and and the other in in schwen krimis you know the other group that you get in prison is or the crime scene are migrants right so you get usually from like relatively recent war zones so you get somalis afghans bosnians serbs kurds you yeah, know particularly because of the more liberal asylum laws. yes because they yeah. yeah and so you know there's always the kind of thing in these novels where it's like well yeah it's nice that we're nice but, you know, is there, there's a cost and maybe we're not so nice anyway because we bring these people in and don't, you know, assimilate them and kind of exploit them, yada, yada, yada. So is that how it goes in Norway, more or less? Is it kind of the, and I imagine like Swedish, uh, they probably don't really have gang fights, but I imagine Swedish prison 
You haven't yeah. heard of the Great Scandinavian Biker War? I have actually. <laughs> so maybe they do have those. But I like to imagine them being between like black metal enthusiasts and Somalis. Uh, I feel like the Somalis would just kind of win that one in the walk because they're they're a tough block. Yeah, yeah. But maybe maybe instead of having you know prison wars, they have you know um, gang wars. They have like gang like uh, I don't know checkers tournaments or something. You know. I mean, so one thing I found out in this research is that the so there's there's kind of several kind of questions or concerns in there, right? <laughs> Which is first, like yes, one hundred percent immigrants. Uh, particularly from Eastern Europe and, and Russia, and, but also from Somalia, Northern Africa, Southern Europe, are overrepresented among the working class, and especially like the poorest strata of the yeah. working class in Norwegian cities. For one thing, they just got there, right? Um, but for another, there they, uh, obviously there's discrimination there. Yeah. There's active anti-discrimination policies, but but yeah, we're we're not talking about a situation where they're like totally shut out of society. Like these are these are working class people, mm -hmm. and they're overrepresented in Norwegians Norway's penal system. Was fascinating uh, to find out here is that if you remember what I said about the 1980s, when Norway was a more homogenous society, more just white yeah, bread, Norwegians, herring eating, yeah. no spice Norwegians. <laughs> were in Norwegian prisons, the reoffense rate in getting back in Norwegian prison for committing another crime was higher right. than it is now when yeah. it's a much more diverse population. I, I think I read that it was something like 64 different nationalities mm -hmm. are in Norway's prisons uh, right now, or 63 or 64 different nationalities. It's a lot of languages, and like yeah. I mean, finding guards who speak the uh, the various languages is actually something that they're continually yeah. trying to to wrestle with to make sure that they're able to speak to the the inmates. Yeah, I mean, I'm told in the Massachusetts prison, it's, it's prison system, it's hard enough to find guards who who can speak Spanish, right? Let alone, I'm sure there's plenty of other languages. Yes, absolutely. There, there's there's Haitian Creole, yeah, Portuguese and uh, Chinese. And there's Mandarin, Russian, mm -hmm. yeah, Capo Verde Portuguese, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But the kind of the the last concern there is to whether there's like this kind of inmate ongoing war interrogation. It's funny because in one of Vicurtis's like first kind of dispatches where they let him do an interview with a a metal magazine, he's mm -hmm. talking about conditions inside Norwegian prisons. He talks about it like like they have like an Aryan Brotherhood and they're all fighting the. The black prisoners. Mm. Yeah, that that's not that's not what's going on. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. I even read things that like there there's some attempts to kind of like like clade off like groups of like so like separate Muslim prisoners will all like wear like red pants, but there's no like yard for them to like all congregate in. They're right. all in living units, like intimately living yeah. with people from other various nationalities. Yeah cooking food together with more guards than people, even in the most maximum security settings. Yeah. So in that kind of environment, it's pretty hard for people to just like peel off and have- Yeah, it's the massive segregation that you see in US prison pop. I mean, the, you know, informal segregation, or in some cases like semi-formal. Yeah. Like my understanding I mean, is- California is like, like practically the formal segregation. Yeah, like my understanding is they have like, they, they more or less formally say, okay, here's the gym equipment each race is allowed to use. Don't don't touch it if you're not from them. Because yeah. You're not and I mean, among like, the, in California and other places, it's 
pretty straightforwardly like a divide and conquer strategy. My understanding is that the big prison gangs in the United States and especially in California all more all, all took their current form or are descended from groups that took their current form in the aftermath of the prison rights movements in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Which we should probably do more, uh, do some more yeah, about that at yeah. some point. Because you went from like a, like literally like forming like racial unity yeah, groups. At Attica. Yeah. So that kind of environment and that dynamic is just as far as could possibly imagine, despite the incredible diversity in, frankly, like in many ways, like greater linguistic diversity in a smaller space that Norway's prisons have. Um, and this actually gets to something, I'll talk more about this with the Kiranis going through these prisons, but one thing to know is they actually have like many more prisons. Oh, interesting. Um, but they're smaller prison populations because one, they, and this I only learned like right before we went on the show, so mm -hmm. sorry. They don't have a division between jail and prison. Like it's the same place. Mm -hmm. um, if you're waiting pre-trial, it's the same place as prison. Uh, obviously you wouldn't want to do that in the U.S. because Theoretically, prison is supposed to be harder, although, like, I've had yeah. a lot of people tell me, like, clients, and I've seen the condition myself, a lot of prisons are better than the jails in a lot of places in the U.S. Because mm. jails, they don't give a shit. Yeah. So these places, they have small populations. I think some of the, one of the largest ones is, like, 250 people. Mm. And uh, makes it easier to manage, but also, like, they can then spread put these people closer to their families, their loved ones, and so on. So well, let's talk about where this asshole goes. Yeah, back back to our anti-protagonist. Yeah. Who's not in 
the fucking Norwegianarian Brotherhood. If there even was one, I don't think they'd take that fucking twerp. No, no. <laughs> yeah. He actually talked a, a big game about how he was kind of in like this kind of like Norwegian front and like he's he called it Norwegian KKK in, while he was in jail awaiting trial. And then they asked him in a later interview, they're like, Are you in any skinhead groups? He's like, No. Yeah. He just is like, No, I'm not not doing any of that. Being that Vickerness is from Bergen, Norway, the first prison he gets sent to is Bergen Prison. And that's mm-hmm. in 1994. At the time he comes in, he's still pretty defiant, like pretty much an asshole. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to pick it up after this kind of pre-trial screen where he's like, you know, everyone's like a Jew and a communist mm-hmm. against me and my lawyer's Jewish, the, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So many and Jews in Norway. So <laughs> many Jews. Best place for bagels in Europe. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? Like, if, if the prime minister and everyone down, everyone in the Labour Party is like a Jew, like, surely I should be able to get a fucking bagel. Right. In a Scandinavian country. Yeah. No. So, uh, picking up... a few years well actually like let's say like a year and a half into his uh his sentence at bergen prison an interviewer and this is for deprived magazine said you have now served about seven months of your sentence now he's like actually i've served 17 months of my sentence not seven and they said how have you how have they been treating you he said i never complain i abstain from saying anything good about police and prison powers so much as there's not much to tell the treatment varies from guard to guard and director to director. And then he complains a lot. Uh, I cannot take anything with me to the visiting room as they practice very strict scrutiny here. And, and when we end the visit and return to ourselves, we first have to undress over our mouths. Like he talks about like how they are inspected to see if they brought in any yeah, drugs yeah. or weapons or mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, it's still prison. Yeah, it's still prison. Also, we have to put on a new set of clothes before we put them back in our cells. Oh, fuck. New clothes? And this brings to a very uh, important thing about Norwegian prisons. They'll give you a whole set of clothes that, in keeping with normality, are supposed to be, like, as close to your normal clothes as, as could be. Right. Nice sanitary. But also... You can just wear your clothes. Yeah. I and mean, they'll wash them for you. Right. Like the fucking H block strikers in Northern Ireland starved themselves to death. Literally to death. At least in part because Thatcher refused to let them wear their own clothes, making them wear prison clothes. Uh, and they refused to be considered common prisoners because they were political prisoners fighting for Ireland's freedom. But this asshole is mad that he he could have sent his his he, he he could like a little lordling take off his you know the clothes he had already walked a little bit in hand them to his fucking guards to wash for him and then yep. uh they'll just give him fresh clothes he could change it uh, he could probably change his clothes yeah what it says later when they've checked our clothes every inch we get them back fuck they damn. checked every inch damn so, uh, yeah, not, I don't think he's asking for more oppression anymore. So when he's there and he's interviewed, he is wearing a Burzum shirt. He has, like, a long sleeve right. like, Burzum shirt. Yeah, he has to advertise himself yeah. in his own clothing in jail. Yeah. Great. But he's complaining. And yeah. th- that's the funny thing is, like, his complaints reflect, actually, like, how humane it is. Yeah. Honestly, his complaints make me want the Norwegian... And I think it's good the Norwegian system is like this. It obviously works, but it makes me want the Norwegian system to be a little bit hard just on him and Breivik. Um, Yeah, like I'm not actually saying that. Passing what, like, 
what do they call it? Like a bill of attainder, a law that's just about yeah. one person? Yeah, they used to do that. It's not a lot. Change it for anybody else. Don't yeah. say like, oh, we need to reconsider our system. Yeah, no, the system's Ask, fine. Ask a Varg Curitas. Yeah, the Varg, the Varg and Breivik law. Yeah. So I took a look at this prison. I, I sent you the picture. Did you see Yeah, that? I did. So this place looks, I got to say, better than most towns in our state. Yeah. In Massachusetts, it's a, a nice state. I mean, one thing that strikes me about all of these is they're very clean, mm. very nice looking prisons. Uh, that might be in part because they're not being like cleaned by trustees who are getting bribed with a candy bar. Right. Uh, they're getting cleaned by cleaning staff, like yeah. in keeping with normality. And mm -hmm. so this place is was built actually in 1990. It looks like kind of like a postcard Norwegian town. The big difference, of course, is there is a giant concrete wall surrounding it and all right. of its greenery and trees around it. Now, I should say, just to answer maybe some critics about this, that Varg says that he was put in isolation in Bergen prison. Mm. He had the warden come to him and sit down and say that I drive the, past the ruins of Asana Church every day, which you burned down. I was married there. I was baptized in that church. Mm. Basically, fuck you. I will make your life hell. Mm. Yeah. More of the more closer to the Berard solution. <laughs> yeah. But I don't believe it. Right. Like, do they do isolation? Well, here's the thing. I looked up in because that's not allowed in the UN rules. I'm pretty sure. No, and I mean they don't. One, they don't have solitary confinement. Yeah. Isolation in the most isolating prison in Norway means a very different thing, and we'll okay. we'll get to that with Ela prison. But in this place, like you look at the floor plan, and at the time that he was in there in ninety four, ninety five, <laughs> there wasn't like a separate isolation wing. Right, and isolation for these prisoners in Norway means that in addition to your single cell, you're also kind of in this separate wing where you have less walking around privileges. Mm -hmm. You don't get to walk out of your cell during daylight hours. You don't get to have your own key to your cell. <laughs> yeah, you can't go to the, you You can't, you don't have your choice in the fucking food court. Like you can't no, go on a no. hike. Um, when you're in this type of quote unquote isolation, yeah. you cannot go to like the, as my wife calls it, like tuck shop. Yeah. On your own, you have to go with the police oh. to use your card, which gets the income that comes from the Norwegian government yeah. every week. So this whole thing of like, I was kept in isolation is, is bullshit. It's, yeah, he's using a technicality there. Like, it sounds like he might have been in... Oh, no, you said there wasn't an isolation. Right? No, it was built and in he, 99. Right. So I, I so think it's he an was just told to not come out as much because he was being a prick. Yeah. I've read other accounts that say that basically you have your day in, in Norwegian prison is actually structured to be very productive. Like they're mm. trying to make you a productive citizen again. Yeah. And so you're woken you all the prisoners are woken up at a certain time. There's uh -huh. not like this like lineup like in American prisons. Right. But yeah. instead a guard walks past and says like good morning. Yeah. And you're supposed to say good morning back or they check on you. Time to get up sleepy head. <laughs> so what I read in these accounts is basically that he was like, fuck this place. I'm not coming out of my cell and going to work or education or vocation. Instead, I'm just going to stay in my cell. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, fine. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's in his cell. Right. 
So what I do know too is that at Bergen Prison, which again is he's placed there because it's close to his family, his mom, his girlfriend, they can all visit him, visitation. He was given a computer mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, some musical instruments. And it's with the computer and with the mail and with the visitors he had in that he blew his privileges and they actually did come down on him. Uh-huh. It wasn't because some... So what do you do? Personal grudge with the big bad warden. Yeah. So he's pretty vague about this, but it seems clear from his uh, interview, which happened later on at Ela Prison, that he said, because I had some trouble with the guards, they come up with these ideas that suddenly I'm not allowed to take visits from this or that person because they are politically incorrect. Uh-huh. And I'm a bit pissed because that is no reason whatsoever. PC gone wild. They they really just want to mess things up. Question, what sort of people won't let, they let visit you? Well, at this time, they deny my girlfriend visits for no reason. Mm-hmm. They claim that she smuggled things out, but that is bullshit as they check me. We have to undress and they go through our clothes and yada, yada, yada. Even when I talk to you journalists, which I don't normally do, they check my clothes. So it's all bullshit, really. He also complains that they they stopped a lot of letters going to him because people write letters with these stupid inverted crosses on them. And I'm not allowed to draw Norwegian flags on envelopes and things because they say that's National Socialist. So basically, I think he was bringing in people trying to continue to try to run this like Some sort black of metal heathen front movement. Uh-huh inside and they're like yeah no you're not doing that yeah like you're going to serve your sentence hmm. and to, to block him from doing that they took away his computer right and his personal computer his personal that computer he that he had in his room hmm. i could no longer access the pornography <laughs> i mean if he was you know they'd probably let him do that it's bad enough it takes five hours to load it's 1995 i porn my porn gif so at this time he actually got sent to a real ass prison Ooh. Ela prison. Hell yeah. The most severe prison in Norway. Uh-huh. And that's the thing. It's not this prison that you see all the time on like Michael Moore's thing and on CNN. Ela prison is a real ass prison. In fact, mm. it is a former internment camp Ooh. used by the Nazis. First for, for Jewish people that they that Norwegians had ratted out. Uh-huh. Then for, of course, communists and that sort of thing, political prisoners, when Quisling was running his yeah. government in collaboration with the Nazis. But it was actually built before, it was built in 1939 mm. as a nice reforming prison. Uh-huh. Uh, and then, because nothing can ever let go away ways in Norway, they rebuilt parts of it in the 90s, and it became a modern 1990s Norwegian prison. Mm-hmm. But so what what what's harder about it than the others? So at Elon Prison, mm. you are in real ass isolation. Mm. You're in the hole. Just a bucket in a Bible. Yeah, no, no. I mean you're you're in the you're in the dorm room. Oh room. You you have a TV. Oh. You have um you have a radio, it has okay. pre-programmed stations, mm. which actually, if there was one thing that was be what was actually like a really real ramping up torture was kind of like a specially designed hell. Mm. He complains so much about the radio station because every time he turns it on, it's like Norwegian pop music right. or like <laughs> like various like yeah. like world multicultural right. mixes. Imp- improving of- lectures about uh the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, no, that would really make a mess. It's like I turn it on, there's rap music, and he was just 
Yeah, a fucking, yeah, a fucking Norwegian metal pedant faced with that. Oof. It's just a Euro. They just have Eurovision contests on TV. You okay, that that them. would be torture. So again, here he's. It says in this interview at the time, the notorious Count Crystal appears in the doorway of the room. He's wearing long a long sleeved, heavily soiled Burzum shirt, mm-hmm. army trousers, and army boots. Considering that they do the washing for you, how much you want to bet that he was just like, I'm not taking off my bosom shirt. Yeah, yeah. He's like just going out in the woods and like rubbing sap on it. Mm-hmm. The the interviewer notes that because he's in isolation, he looks incredibly pallid, to which I would say also he's Norwegian. Yeah, right. So here's the thing. And he doesn't admit this in his little interviews, but this is also a time when he actually like gets cracking on on being a productive person and mm. isn't fighting with guards. He never fought with a guard. Oh, yeah. Never fought with another inmate. Did he ever actually fight anybody as opposed to stabbing a guy who is running away from him? Is there any evidence that he actually fights anyone? That's the thing is before he entered into Norwegian prison, it does seem like he was ramping up. Yeah, to that. I mean, he was definitely ramping. He was definitely. I mean, he got in fights when he was when he was a younger guy in like okay. the black metal scene, okay. right? And he he wasn't even though he he denies it now. Like he was involved in in torturing stuff. Okay, but he he's the type of guy who will like do a violent thing and be like, no, no, no. There's an explanation. I wasn't there. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Some fucking Nietzschean. Yeah. That's the thing with all these fucking guys. They try to so so along with trying to get out of being a Nazi, like Moynihan, who helped biographize this guy, does by saying, "Oh, it's not Nazism; it's spiritual elitism." You know, I just and I happen to think there's a connection between race and and spirituality, <laughs> and it's like, all right, guy. Plus, so so not only is that fucking stupid and a set of excuses and cowardly as shit. But usually when they actually do anything, uh, they'll also, they'll do this. They can't even manage the spiritual elitism. If you were such a spiritual elite, you'd cop to it. You'd say you did it. And yeah. they can't manage that either. I mean, it's all fucking trash. One of the interesting aspects of his time in this prison is that like he he's just a massive self-promoter and talker. Of course. But all of the tendency to to that I think like is actively dangerous to like, actually convert that into physical violence on other people or conspiring with other inmates is it he doesn't show it's it's shorn off yeah you know my understanding not because they're treating him like especially nice but because they're treating him like normal they're treating him like a, yeah or like a somewhat mischievous child as he is yeah which he basically is yeah so he got put in this hard-ass isolation place and um i take issue with him even saying he was in like what we would consider isolation in the U.S. or like elsewhere, because he he also said this in the same interview: you can either go to work or go to school here. And when you are at work, we have to put lamps together. But luckily, I am in school. I have to get up at seven a.m. and then go there from seven thirty to fifty, and then have dinner, and then from four to six p.m. you stay in the yard if you want to be out there that long, and then I go back to my room. In other words, he's obeying all the fucking rules. Yes. Yeah. Like he's just he's being a good prisoner. Right. There are sections of 10 people who have to share a kitchen, shower, and toilet. You don't have a toilet in the cell. So if you need to piss, you do it in the basin. In other words, he got denied the right to like a, a toilet in the cell. Yeah. Because this is a hard ass prison. Mm, yeah. And instead, he has this like kind of like dorm quad unit mm. with other people who are probably like, 
stop stop talking about Tolkien. Yeah. Just stop that sounds, it, it sounds kind of not again, not to belabor this point. It sounds kind of a lot like my door in yeah. college. So I wrote a book when I was in Bergen, Bergen prison. Mm -hmm. There was always the threat of it being stopped, so I crammed in as much as I could. I will be taking it to a publisher soon. Oh shit. Yeah. He also apparently wrote a role-playing game system. Yeah, I heard it was like just a lot of like grinding. Yeah, yeah. He, he comes from like the old old like D, D tradition of like joyless fucking uh stat crunching for for every little dumb pedantic point uh and obviously racism mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of racism in it but not even all that well expressed like i've seen i've seen better racism in D, &D all right damn so the next prison he goes to because the thing is, is that in spite of all his protestation is of like, I'm in isolation, I'm like a bad boy. Mm -hmm. He obviously is actually doing the work yeah. and, and against his own wishes, I would argue like getting reformed mm -hmm. in terms of not becoming a violent conspirator. Right. And they, you know, have him blocked off from mm -hmm. saying things. I think at this time, his ability to organize like a, this European heathen front, which mm -hmm. he was trying to do from Bergen prison as a, has been interrupted. So the next prison he goes to is Tonsberg. And this is the uh this is probably gonna make you the most enraged because having basically done everything right and socialized well and, and gone to school at Ela prison, he was put down to this minimum security prison where he escaped. Oh and damn, all right. I don't, is, I don't, is. I don't mean escape by like he, you know, like, you know, made a, a, a rope of blankets mm. and stormed over the wall or or chipped something away. Yeah, and got, formed a guard. So basically he like jumped the gun. He he was put out on a furlough, as mm. we would call in the U.S. Mm -hmm. They actually do like, they try to rehabitualize prisoners to like yeah. just totally normal life. So at first, like if you're in maximum security, they'll take you out to like a, on a supervised with it with like. A corrections officer right to like a cafe they're like we're going to have a coffee now to like yeah. get them used to the rhythm of life on the yeah, outside yeah. which i think makes a lot of sense like the transition sure. from prison yeah. life and just the amount of trauma in the u.s yeah. like normal rhythms and stuff like that right. especially when there's like no sound oh yeah but he had gotten to the point where he was going on like a weekend visit mm -hmm. and he just rabbit yeah so he didn't have to like organize anything or do anything cool to make it happen he didn't have to but he did oh all right there's a so that, that's a gamer attitude he, he went out on leave and someone either his girlfriend mm -hmm. or likely some of these you know like worshipful yeah. uh okay. petrified magazine reading yeah uh like kind of nazi goal types who were like, oh, this Christian society has too much compassion. They supplied him with a with gun, with a pistol, a GPS, a car. And um, he the plan was clearly that he was going to drive to this cabin where police later found that he they also had a loaded uh, G3 mm -hmm. automatic rifle. Oh, wow. Like that, the, the German one. Um, but this is Norway, uh, where the clearance rate is very high. Yeah. So he was immediately fucking caught because everyone was like, I think Varg Kieran is the prisoner. Yeah, he, he didn't show up for it. He didn't show up for his uh, annual, for his daily milkshake. Uh, we got him. Yeah. Uh, like, it did, so was his plan to, like, stay in that cabin, either under the radar, or was his plan to, like, 
get caught by the police and then shoot it out with them or something like no so when he was first interviewed about this he and his lawyer said that he had hatched this plan because in this minimum security environment a prisoner or several prisoners had threatened to really mess him up mm. this is actually somewhat believable on its face because when he got to tonsberg prison the citizens of tonsberg in the local newspaper were like we hate this guy <laughs> Here's a listing of everything he did, including yeah. burning down these like irreplaceable. Yeah. Uh, although they, you know, they did reconstruct, right? Yeah. But irreplaceable works of architecture mm -hmm. and history. And he also stabbed his friend. Right. And he's a dick. Big friend. And he's just a dick and a racist. Yeah. So, as you can imagine, when you're in that minimum security environment with that very public announcement about him mm -hmm. and variety of people of color and working mm -hmm. class people and yeah. so on who are housed not just with you but also like making dinner with you right or in the same vicinity yeah you having to listen to your bullshit for like 24 hours a day i'm i'm not racist i'm just really into magic and and tolkien i'm a spiritual elite and and segregation you simply don't understand yeah so i actually find that like somewhat believable mm -hmm. but for the fact that later on when he was asked about it, when he actually was released from prison right. in 2009, they asked him about it and he said, I had no idea what my plan was. Hmm. It was really stupid. Mm, yeah. All right. A little bit of contrition there. Yeah, like, yeah. Hey, some self-awareness. Stupid there. Yeah. Good. Um, Great. So Norway is not explicitly one of those countries where if you escape from prison, it's not a crime in and of itself because there's a human right to freedom. They expect right. that prisoners want oh, to escape. Okay. That's a, you're, that's like fighting the urge to like eat. Right. Um, it is, however, one that doesn't like go overboard on escape and mm. escape charges. So rather than doing anything like bring him to trial on the new charge, they just added 14 months to his sentence mm. and they transferred him from the minimum security Tunsberg to the really hardcore prison. Even harder core than Eli? No. Prawn <laughs> time. Damn. That sounds hard. It does sound really harsh, though, right? Yeah. I actually couldn't find a lot about Tron time, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. I did find a few interviews he does during this time, and this is where I would say he makes the most work, not in becoming not an asshole, because spoiler alert, like, he's still right, he's, he's still an asshole. But he does make a lot more progress and kind of, like, being like, I'm going to be an asshole on my own right. and with people who listen to me and not try to like so interestingly he's interviewed in 2004 when he's in Trondheim they say how do you feel now in prison if possible describe your ordinary day what are you allowed to do and are not are you threatened much by the other prisoners and the wardens immediately answers no I'm not threatened by anybody the yeah. prison system in Norway is fairly civilized by world standards so are the prisoners and the guards. I get along well with about everybody. Recently, I got to have a computer in my cell. We'll study computer programming in the coming year. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, not much is happening. We sit in one man's cells in 23 hours a day, spend an hour in the yard. So this is another like isolation type arrangement because he's screwed up several times before, particularly since he escaped. Mm -hmm. But he says he has a TV in his cell. He does exercises and push-ups. He made some water bottles into weights. Hmm. So I guess he's not allowed to have weights. Hmm. He's interviewed then later on uh, in 2005. And he said he complains about the radio stations. 
in the pre-programmed stations having to listen to, to pop music or state propaganda, mm. as he calls it. But this is really a complaint to another music patent. Then after Trondheim, he doesn't get sent to another like maximum security prison. He, he gets slowly but surely stepped down to uh, the much more lenient uh, Tromso prison, where he's ultimately released from. Mm. But in Tr the, they don't do release in Norway or you know parole in like a straightforward way where it's like prison and then poof, you're released. Instead, they, they actually do it in a way that used to be done in Massachusetts until Willie Horton. Mm. Uh, which is that they let you out for, you know, first like an hour and then a few hours and then overnight and then a weekend and then yeah. several days a week. So during that time, he joined a metal band. Uh -huh. And interestingly, he switched to thrash metal. Oh, huh. good for him. Uh, and he said he was a drummer in that band. So, I mean, what I find interesting about that is that he was willing to, like, go into the town and be like, okay, guys, I'll I'll be the drummer in your band. Yeah. He wasn't trying to be like, this is my band and my yeah, project. I'm, I'm the count. That, that, was a, uh, that was a project that came to an end. All right. uh, and he did, he did practice with an acoustic guitar in his cell during that time. Mm -hmm. He got to have lots of family visits. Now, he, uh, he was denied parole uh, about three times, even though the Norwegian constitution would normally allow him parole in say, I guess with the extension like 2008, he was it was denied several times. Then finally on the fourth try in 2009, he was rolled and released. Mm -hmm. He did an interview afterwards uh, with Dagblad, like a serious newspaper in 2009, where they asked him just straight up, can you kill again? He says, all people can kill, but there's less chance that I will kill again because I've been in that situation before. So I know how to tackle it. Mm. Sounds like some anger management talk. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> it is possible to know how to behave in threatening situations before you even end up in such a situation yourself. Had I been in the same situation today, I would have contacted the police first. I'd have them stab my friend 16 times. People make simple choices at a young age. There was a certain tone in the environment I was in. Mm -hmm. It is not good to be careless. It's dangerous. At the end, even this like total prick ends up just being like, yeah, yeah I could have managed my anger better. Right. That was that was bad. We'll call the police. I'm not going to do it again. Call the police when I make up a friend uh, going to stun gun me. Yeah. Well, maybe he was. Who knows? These people were, were pretty good. Yeah. Or, Arsep was a weird guy. But yeah. even if he had said that, like at the top point that he's like fleeing. Yeah. He, like he, he kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of one already. I mean, it kind of does sound like, um, you know, again, if we want to do devil's advocate, it does sound like within the ambit of the possibilities of the Norwegian system, other than letting them get parole, they might have like, it, it sounds like they did more to like frustrate him mm -hmm. than they maybe, I could see a scenario where they really didn't like him. Yeah. And they did more to him, like not letting him have weights, not letting him have a CD player. Yeah, like little, little yeah, nuisances. Yeah, like nuisance harassments. Yeah, which, you know, if you're, if the thing is, you know, he might hate, you know, passive Norwegian society, but there was no other society in the world other than the contemporary Nordic societies that would create a Varg Vikernes. Like, 
not he would not fit in with the Vikings. Right. I don't think he even would have fit in with like somewhat hard bitten, like impoverished nineteenth century Norway. Like they all would have been like, "You're a fucking complainer. Shut the fuck up." Or they, they it wouldn't have created a guy like him, right? He's such yeah. a product of he might yeah, you know and it, it makes sense that if he's it makes sense sometimes to hate the thing that produces you if you're you know an unhappy person. So okay, you know that that makes sense, but it, it's just so ludicrous. So yeah, it's, so, it's almost as if to some extent there's not a recognition that Norwegian society, like like modern Norwegian society, produced him. There is this like slow but sure recognition that he's like. I could not possibly get better treatment anywhere else. Yeah. And that he is such a modern, like, social democratic citizen. Yes. And then he's like, oh, no, I know. You don't understand. I need an electric guitar, not my acoustic yes. guitar. I need my computer. Why can't I send this thing out? Right. I'm a yes. citizen. I have rights. He is someone who could not exist in an environment without a manager to complain to. Yes. Right. That's what, that's what, for all of his fucking you know worship of the ancestors and of the north uh, of the viking glory days he would not do well there because there was no manager to complain to uh he obviously wasn't that great at crime no although yeah. you know what like devil's advocate on that one mm. had Arseth just been like stabbed and left on his balcony or sorry on the uh yeah the credit card scheme might have worked it probably would have mm, interesting just interviewed and, and cleared, at least in, until they cracked the uh, the co-defendant. Right. Yeah. So you know. So so what I was saying is, it, it it might be that the Norwegian authorities were like somewhat harder on him than the others, but because he's such a social democratic citizen, such a perfect twentieth century Norwegian, that he, you know, up until the very end couldn't distinguish between that and actual anything like actual ill treatment right. that you would get in even another European prison system, let alone an American or a third world prison system. When you have, when I think among other things, uh, I could see a situation like, you know, do I think that that fucking warden gave a shit about the burnt church? Maybe. I don't think that's what would have caused the system to have inconvenienced him as much as it did. Uh, he embarrassed us. Yeah, I can see that as a reason. It'd be a news things, but... right? And it became a news story in the outside world. Yeah, right. All of a sudden, people are paying attention to Norway and medically associating Norway with this fucking guy. Like he's probably the most famous Norwegian in the world. Who yeah. else would it be? Probably Breivik. Right. Okay. Yeah. Before, yeah. So Before that's Breivik, yeah, yeah. The two most fucking famous Norwegians in the world are these Nazi murderers. That must suck for Norway. I mean, maybe that 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 says a that that says like a part of it that in Norway there there's such a it, it's it's too simplistic to say like subsumption of the the yes. individual. Yeah, but there's there's enough of a, a full on like democracy right. of of like yeah I'm actually not that important. Yeah, that when this guy comes along, it's like I am important. See, I yeah. will I will kill a person to say I'm important. How important I am. Um, yeah, that and, we, and I guess the reforming part is being like, nope. uh, no, yeah, no, we we are, we're reforming you to make you realize you're not important. You actually have yeah. to convince people. 
I mean, yeah. so there's a cultural element, which I'm sure is real, but there's also just you in Norway, you don't need to be important or famous in order to have an okay life, right? Which increasingly in the rest of the world you do, right? But in, and to going to your point, like definitely a product of it, and frankly, I think to some extent, Norwegian black metal is a product of the fact that like there's a bit more freedom to be eccentric, right? It doesn't come with this like crazy cost. Yeah, you'll right? notice they like, didn't. They they totally have like if you look at the news reports at the time, they're totally like fascinated and entranced by this whole like Satanism thing, but they weren't like like wrecking like People's... black metal stores and yeah, stuff like that and they were... Were doing mass arrests right that. there wasn't there wasn't anything like the satanic panic right or there wasn't anything like the panic about juggles yeah. right like they same fucking face paint more or less you know they uh you know juggles are considered a fucking criminal gang by, the, se- yeah. by the fbi the federal law enforcement in several states yeah and that's just you know uh, jesus yeah but uh, to get back to the prisons thing, because sometimes in in discussions in the U.S. we we have we frankly we used to have I feel like a lot more gradations of discussion of, of prison reform. You know, mm-hmm. Should pri- like agitating for prisoners have the right things like conjugal visits mm-hmm. to getting paid like the standard wage rather than like two cents mm-hmm. um, to having. Uh, access to the outside and better living conditions and even the right to vote like in the u.s only vermont and maine have the right to vote for prisoners mm-hmm. but now the debate if i can call it that because there just doesn't seem to be much debate seems to be pretty much all punitive once we yeah. get past the the sentencing stage it seems entirely like between the poles of like cheap the system as it is and, and full-on abolition mm. So I was wondering, like, what your thoughts are on that? Because some people have argued, like, well, if you want to call this thing a prison, like, sure. Right. Like, I'll just say, like, I'm an abolitionist because I believe in that. Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, it's so far off. The You know, the American prison system is so huge, so punitive, so heavily defended by so many interests that it causes the politics of prison abolition prison reform i think to get pretty uh dysfunctional i do consider myself a prison abolitionist in much the same way i consider myself a a police abolitionist in that uh i do think that in a socialist society that was inhabited by what i would recognize as human beings which is to say people capable of fault and of victimizing each other uh there would be in a socialist society some manner of people in charge of security and people in charge of investigating uh, violations of other people's rights, like the right to exist free of violence. So if you define police as anyone who does that, then am I a police abolitionist? Well, I think I am because I think the police are actually a specific historical institution in this country that I think we should sever the continuity between that and whatever uh, security force we can come up with if uh, somehow we get socialism. So, so you don't consider like the existence of any like public secu- civilian security force to be police necessarily? No. In this, and, and as far as I can tell, most of the people who I organize with or have known through organizing, I mean, not for nothing, but I mean, you know, a fair number of the people I know who are uh, very much against the police are also kind of uh, fans of certain uh, secret police formations 
in various historical, in some cases, current regimes. Yeah, uh, too. And, and of and of uh, various punishment techniques and technologies. Uh, so, as far as prisons, that's someone who. So, a prison is. I mean, along with being a historical institution like the police, it's also a methodology, right? It's saying uh, sometimes we need to uh, restrict people to a given location in order to some combination punish, reform, discipline, whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. When we have people on our hands who have uh, committed crimes and we want to either deter these crimes or punish them because of some sort of like symbolic need to do so, or to rehabilitate whoever we want, or because they're not safe to have around. So do I think, I think that in all likelihood, again, a human, a society of social, a socialist society, which has humans as I recognize them in it. I know people who think that the construction of the human is so labile that possibly a, a you, you really would have the new socialist man uh, or socialist person that would be so different from everyone else, from what we think of as human, that you wouldn't need uh, anyone providing any kind of security or investigation. You would There would be no need to uh, keep some people away from others or to punish them. Okay, that's as maybe, that sounds great if that happens. But humans, as I understand them, you might wind up with some people who you can't have free because they're incorrigibly violent for whatever reason. You might, and you might, wind up with a population that you want to uh you know reform in some way uh and i'm ambivalent about that uh for a number of reasons but i do think that we need we would need to break the continuity between our current prison system and whatever system of reform and or punishment that we come up with in the future the last part i want to say next to this is that I think you've mentioned before, Isaac, that you've encountered conversation. You, you see the conversation as you know with the police ab with police and prison abolitionists mm -hmm. that they often ignore the possibility of reforms that could actually benefit people because they say, "Oh, it's still cooperating with the system." Have you yeah. said that? Is that right? Well, it, it seems that they're just like kind of less concerned with that than building right. support for the ultimate. Yeah, the ultimate goal. And I, I mean, you, you've actually told me that because you actually have more experience uh, in, in recent years as an organizer than I do, that there's actually like quite a bit of yeah. support for reforms intermediary that. And the, yes. the, the debate I experience is largely an online one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just to, to stake my flag, but the, the thing is, is I don't think institutionally I'm in much disagreement with you, mm -hmm. although I wouldn't consider myself a police or prison abolitionist because like two propositions, I believe, are that you should have a civilian, you know, not militarily controlled, not a separate institution that's separate from democratic controls, yeah, yeah. control public security force and investigation force that is publicly responsible sure. and yeah. also has no additional rights right. than yeah. civilians. I mean, that's right. the key yeah. thing being a civilian, um, which I realize that historically, like in terms of when we look at like especially in the Anglophone world, the definition of what police are supposed to be. Technically, that's what they're supposed to be. And the same, not the same thing, but similarly with prisons, mm -hmm. I think that it should be entirely a reform institution. Although mm -hmm. I, I was thinking today um, back to something that came up in Ian Banks's culture series, yeah. the slap drone. Yeah, yeah. Which is if you're a person who, who kills someone, say, mm -hmm. 
or, or does an outrageous act of violence and you don't submit to some kind of treatment, so voluntarily go to the enclosed mm -hmm. prison space, then you're followed around by a slap drone that can interfere with your actions right. to make sure you don't harm anybody yeah, else. Yeah. And that would be kind of the ideal solution, but although I actually do feel that, that the slap drone solution is, even though it's as a full expression of like kind of a post-scarcity yeah. society, it's actually unfair to people around it, which is like, no, this person hurt or killed somebody. Right. They need to be reformed. They shouldn't yeah. be able to just get yeah. just invited to parties. Yeah, it's um, a, it's a complicated, but it's a complicated question. But I think the I think the Norway example illuminates that. And you know what? This was much more fun and much more illuminating than uh, yeah than some of our our previous right, work. Sure. If you need to pick me up, yeah, listeners. Yeah. So so like I the last thing I would want, would want to say is like Isaac was saying. So like the online space, as usual you know, you get kind of the worst versions of any given argument. I would say that many of the prison abolitionists I know are also on, like, the, you know, the front lines of trying to improve conditions for prisoners, allow them to live a more human life, A, for its own sake, and B, so that they can organize and agitate for themselves. Yeah. So, for instance, one group that I, that I can mention here that I think would be good for local listeners uh, to to maybe look into is deeper than water. Prison water supplies are very bad, yes. including in Massachusetts. Yeah. And uh, they're trying to uh, improve that because you know, at, at the point of where you're you're giving people shitty water, like water they can't drink. Why are you at that point? You're just saying you're not even in the protecting society business. You're in the making people miserable business. Yeah, you're in the sadism business, and, and like it's on the the sadism business thing that I think is a lot of why we, to some extent, I wonder if I don't believe it's like putting the cart before the horse necessarily to do prison work and prison reform work before doing society work. I think we have to do yeah. both, obviously. Mm -hmm. But one thing that's just really apparent from the Norwegian example is that the reason that they're able to do these humane conditions and have society kind of consent to that is because they're not more humane than the right. conditions outside yes. of prison. It is literally just they're giving them normal society. Yeah, yeah. And normal for us is really fucked up. Um, right. I mean, one example from my own experience about how messed up the world on the outside was is I had a, had a client once, I'm not going to give any identifying information, I'm not going to say even which city he was in, but he, he was arrested on a, a very minor charge. The type of petty charge where it's just like trespassing after warning. I fought hard to, he, he had, um, he had organic brain injuries. Mm. I fought hard to get his case dismissed. And I was overjoyed when a couple weeks later I got his case dismissed and I, um, I went to the jail to give him the news because he had refused to come in to the court. And it turned out that he had fought with the guards because he didn't want to be released from the jail. He had been homeless and out of reach of any social services mm. for for so long that the prospect of being back out on the street mm. out of air conditioning and back in the heat the summer at the time and without food yeah was so much that he tried to basically get a new charge Jesus. to stay in the jail which even though i think the guards actually got hurt they just were not charging him they were not keeping him not not to belabor the point or end on a, a sad note or anything but i do I actually draw some hope in the Norwegian history here 
from the fact that the conditions were bad enough and perhaps because of a larger social democratic consciousness mm -hmm. and links with the trade union movement, mm. the guards of all people joined in. Right. And, uh, you know, we seem a long way from that here, but we've seemed a long way from a lot of things before. Mm. Free to have the last word. No, I don't, I don't, I don't really have any. Thanks for uh, listening and for uh, looking into this and, you know, Varg and... Michael Moynihan, all those people uh, can all go fuck themselves. Yep. Go fuck. But not you listeners. Yeah. You're Thanks for listening. Subscribe to us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash History of Violence. That's it for us this time. Yep. See you next time. Bye-bye.